This podcast is sponsored by our friends at The Natural Shoe Store. We love The Natural Shoe Store. They're gorgeous and sustainable. What more could you want? The Natural Shoe Store, because every step matters. Hi, friends. This week, we're revisiting some of the spirit and empowered thinking that emerged from the chaos of 2020. With a conversation we had at the time with the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Jess Scully. Jess is an extraordinary young councillor who is helping bring more voices to the political table while creating pathways to reclaim public spaces, address housing problems, and enable more resilient and connected cities and communities. Jess is also an arts curator and writer, a passionate advocate for the role of creativity in our lives. And at the time we caught up with her, she had just released her first book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World. This conversation spans her experiences in politics, advocating for more participatory forms of democracy, her vision for our cities, as well as what was coming up for her at the time as a young mum four months into the pandemic. Jess is chatting with our programming manager at Small Giants Academy, who is currently on maternity leave and who we're missing very much, Eleanor Gamble. I want to start with a bit of framing around this year. What has been coming up for you during 2020 and how have you been processing this year? It's been so disruptive and traumatic for a lot of people all over the world. And Australia has, to an extent, been quite lucky in that we have seen that happen. We've had some of those impacts. We've had certainly the economic impacts, but probably not the human toll that's been experienced elsewhere. And it's a year of almost reckoning in that our lifestyles have caught up with us. And it's almost like the unsustainability of everything has been thrown into relief. And I feel that on a personal level as much as our society feels it. I feel like I have always thought personally that just more energy and more work and more connections and being out more, being more visible, being more present was what I needed to do. And that was the only way that I could contribute and that I had to just keep working and picking up projects. And when you hit a wall like this year, I think it's kind of what a lot of people would experience when they experience an illness perhaps in their lives where they are forced to reevaluate how they operate. And I think that happened to me as an individual in figuring out what I wasn't able to engage with people and ideas in the same way by being physically present, by supporting them, by being at events, by advocating in the same way. And I think it's also happened to our society in that we've realized that a lot of the practices that we had and particularly the economy that we've had, which has been about endless growth, about extraction, and also about drawing people from overseas to spend money and being very outwardly focused, externally focused, that has been pulled away all of a sudden. And so we're having to turn to our inner reserves of strength, whether that's as individuals, as families, or as smaller local communities, or even as a country. And so it's that sort of thing with that we've done everything up until now. 
And we always kind of knew that it couldn't last forever. But suddenly, it's gone from being this abstract thing that happens at a certain point in the future to something that happens overnight. And I think despite the disruption and the trauma of that, we're lucky that we get to take that moment, particularly in Australia, to take that moment and to be more considerate about what the next phase looks like or what we actively want. Because so much of this is inherited and it's just happening through inertia of the system that we have. We haven't actively chosen this. And now we get a moment to decide whether we choose it, whether we're going to opt back into it. I want to start with your journey, arriving to the glimpses of utopia you're shining a light on today. Let's rewind to a time that you were the age of the school children you now visit to talk with about a better future. You grew up with a mother who had fled from Chile under Pinochet and an Anglo-Indian father from Bangalore. What did utopia look like for you as a first-generation Australian little girl growing up in Fairfield? I think I didn't really have much of a conception of how anything really worked, but I had a sense that decisions were being made and choices were being made and that I had to get somewhere else in order to understand how those choices got made. And I think I had that experience of seeing inequality when we lived in Chile. We lived in Chile when I was 10 and 11. And I think that was the first time that coming from Fairfield and Liverpool, that part of Sydney, you see that part of Sydney and you think that's really normal. But it was when I went to Chile and we lived there and I saw the extremity of how unequal a society can be that I realized that not everyone gets the same opportunities and that not everyone gets opportunity to have their voices heard and have a say in the decisions that are made on their behalf. And so when I came back here, I think I became more acutely aware of that divide in my own city and realizing that I was on the other side of that divide. My most distinct memory of being 13 was during high school. And I went to a high school called Helston Agricultural High School, which is elective agricultural school with borders. And it was such an eye-opening experience because I came from this very multicultural background and suddenly I was in this very suburban context, but also had a whole bunch of country kids from regional New South Wales and beyond um, who had their own completely different set of priorities and culture and ways of living and language. And I realized how incredibly diverse the world is. Again, I think I realized that this wasn't where decisions were made either. And I have this really embarrassing memory from being a teenager. I think I was probably a little shit because I remember telling people, oh, I'm not going to go here for very long because actually I'm going to Sydney Grammar next year. (laughs) And I didn't know that Sydney Grammar was a boys' school. I'd heard the name and I'd driven past it at some point and saw this like sandstone thing in the middle of the city. And I was like, I want to go there. And this little social climber was confidently telling people that they're going to a boys' school in the middle of the city. And it took me years to work out what I had actually been saying. But I think what I was getting at was I just wanted to have a voice. Like I just wanted to have a say and to understand how things worked and how decisions got made. And I think that was one of the reasons why I studied law because I was like, oh, that's the rule book. If you just learn the rules, you can change them. But I just had no idea. What a funny thing to be so interested in as a little kid. I don't know why I was so focused on getting to this other place, but all I can think of was I had this really deep embodied sense that not everyone was having their voice heard and not everyone got to have a say and that I could see what the lived effects of that looked like. Big lessons for a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) 
Was there someone, was it your mom or your dad, who was the biggest influence on your value system? Who instilled this ambition or this groundedness in you? I think both my mum and dad, we had always had big picture conversations. My dad is obsessed with history and loves telling the stories of ancient empires. He would tell these long stories about the first university in the world in Varanasi in India, or he'd talk about the systems of government or organisation that the Mayans had. He had this sort of long, deep time view of history, I suppose. He is more interested in stories from a very long time ago and the depth of knowledge. So that was my dad's perspective, whereas my mum, I think, more told stories as we were kids about what she'd been through and has never really been political since. I think she was kind of scarred by that experience. But I was very conscious of it. And the other thing that I think my parents did, rather than instill the kind of sense of values and social justice were forgiven, like the water around us. But I think what they gave me was a sense of confidence that I think is so valuable that they must have been the ones who made me think that I had something worth saying, a reason to have my voice heard. And I think not every kid gets that. That's what's probably the most exceptional thing that my parents gave me was a sense of confidence and entitlement to be heard. As a daughter then and as a mother now and a partner and a leader, you know, how would you describe the the values most dear to you? I think fairness. There's this traumatic moment in childhood that we never talk about, which is the moment when you realise that there is no arbiter of fairness. And when you say as a kid, that's not fair, and you kind of expect there to be a resolution or a sense-making or a judge somewhere who's meeting out. A referee, exactly. And then when you find out that there isn't one and it's just people and we just have to work these things out and sometimes unfair things happen to everyone, I think that's probably a thing that we need to spend more time with kids on. Because I think for me, fairness is the one that resonates. Because when I think about the stuff that I get really wound up about, I get wound up about the unfairness of our lifestyles having an impact on people who have not had anywhere near the carbon footprint that we've had. And they're the ones who are going to feel it the most, people in the developing world, people in the global south who have lived closer to nature and more sustainable and embodied lives. And they're paying for my terrible shopping habits. And the unfairness of it is so grating. And then I think in a local context, the unfairness of the way we have designed our systems to privilege those who already have access or to trickle benefit up to those who already have wealth. I still haven't quite worked out that there isn't an arbiter there making decisions on fairness and unfairness. With someone to send them to the sin bin and say, that's not for you. You've benefited enough from this. Exactly. I'm cutting you off. I believe you and I were sipping whiskey sours in a bar (laughs) in Chippendale. You told me you were going to soon meet with the mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore. Sneaky suspicion that meeting might evolve into a big new chapter for you. From working in Music Mag, publishing, curating in the creative arts, founding the phenomenal success that is Vivid Ideas Festival in Sydney and now being the Deputy Mayor of Sydney. It's clear that public life is a huge component you embody in being of service to something greater, to be in service of this idea of fairness. I'd love to hear your reflections on your contribution to public life and how you think this platform and your proximity to both policy and people is affecting meaningful change or has the potential to affect meaningful change. Now I remember that drink, you know. That was a great drink. Now that must be four or five years ago. I think there's like a couple of things there. I think there's what I'm able to do by being there, I hope, for other people. 
What I want to do is tell people who are not the usual suspects, people who aren't retired, independently wealthy, people who aren't already enmeshed in the system, and people who don't look like the usual suspects. I want to tell them, this is for you too, you know, and actually having a say in public life or in politics is for everyone. It's a responsibility and it's also an opportunity. So I'm hopeful that by just being there, I can help show people that that is real, that you can be nine months pregnant and become Deputy Lord Mayor, that you can be a mother of a young child and be doing this work. It's going to be really hard, but actually everyone benefits by having a new perspective in that role and having a perspective that isn't usually heard, having access to the microphone. So I think that's really helpful. I also think it's really important that we have people who are from the creative world involved in more of the policy making or decision making roles in our society. And that's because for too long, we have privileged a very narrow band of human enterprise and that is making money as being the people who are most qualified to make decisions about how we run the world. And that's how we've ended up with the world that we have. What if we had more people whose goal was the creation of beauty or telling stories or giving other people a platform or listening or people whose job it is who've created a pathway for themselves that's about growing food or nurturing young people or caring for older people? What if those people were making decisions? We would have a richer public life, a richer discourse, and we'd get better decision making because suddenly you wouldn't just have this very narrow, financially driven set of decision makers making decisions with that possibly invisible bias colouring their vision. So I think what I bring to that just by what I've done before and who I am, I think is really powerful. And I think myself individually, what I hope that I can bring to public life I have this sort of mission statement that I came up with for my career like 10 years ago, and it's helped me explain and make choices for myself for a very long time. And the mission statement is to move Australia from an extraction to a creative and knowledge economy. And as soon as I was able to come up with that idea, so much more of my life made sense and I made it so much easier for me to make decisions about what I would put my time and energy into. And it's this insanely over-the-top ambitious thing to say. And I'm sometimes astonished at the audacity of the statement because as an individual, the idea that I can shift our entire economy from pulling things out of the ground and shipping them overseas to our creativity and making and our ideas is absurd. But imagine that's my ambition and everything I choose to do has to be in service of that goal. And I can see the benefits of that being environmental, social, cultural, and also speak to our spirit and identity as a country. Imagine if we believed more in ourselves, that we had more to give the world than just some old rocks and some stuff that might be lying under a water basin. Imagine if we thought, wow, the people who live here have amazing stories to tell, incredible skills, global connections. They have a diversity and a depth of storytelling and range of storytelling that goes back 60,000 years, plus all of the stories that come from everywhere else in the world. We would have a confidence as a nation that would get us halfway. And then we'd be in a position of confidence and positivity and strength 
to build the future that we need, right? So part of it is about an attitude and mindset shift to reassessing what our strengths are, what the resources we have to exploit, what our primary industries really are, you know? So when I think about what I can contribute, that's the thing that I want to contribute. And then as well, I love cities and I'm passionate about cities. And I think cities have the potential to be an engine of inclusion and economic opportunity for people, but also a place where you can make environmental change and have impact and a place where you can create more fairness. And so I'm passionately interested in the idea of cities as a place where you're working at a human scale to achieve those things. And that's why I'm passionate about urban planning and local government and local economic development and community wealth building and all that sort of stuff. Eleanor is 10 months old now. Yes. The dedication you have in Glimpses of Utopia is for your daughter, Eleanor, and the future her generation deserves. I understand entirely the new sense of urgency for a better future that motherhood brings. It's something about a shift from personal to collective legacy. I'd love to hear your thoughts on your rite of passage into mm. hood and how it compelled you at this time to be shining a light on the glimpses of hope you see in systemic change around the world. You know, I've been having all of these really predictable revelations where you're just like, oh my gosh, the future we make today will be passed down to future generations and she's part of that. And she's so cute. And she's so cute. I just instantly felt this tremendous sense of responsibility. And also, as you start to see risks around your lounge room, you start to see the risks out the door. The first three months of Eleanor's life, we could barely go outside because the air quality was actually toxic. And so it all was incredibly real, incredibly fast. And that idea that it wasn't that she was going to be facing these challenges in 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, but she would be facing them from the day she was born. And that that is already a reality for kids all over the world. It just hit me in the face. And you're both more energized and also perhaps more frustrated because you think, oh no, this is really urgent. We must do something about this right now. People have been urgently trying to do something about this for 30 years or more. What makes me think that I'm going to have more of an impact? For me, I wanted people to have something to opt into, not just opt out of. Naomi Klein describes it as a big, bold yes to go with the climate movement's no. And that's kind of what I want to offer is there are alternatives already in play and already in place. And that makes the goal that feels sometimes impossible of systems change, it makes it more tangible because I've seen it, I've touched little pieces of that. That systems change you're talking about, you're calling out for a 21st century operating system to upgrade our policies, upgrade our processes and our public sphere. From that idea of utopia you talked about before from your own childhood, what does it look like for you now as we step into a new operating system? What is your utopia? I think... Is it that mission statement? I think it's that mission statement, but I think it's actually probably more lived at a local level. And I think it's about people feeling like what they have to contribute is important and feeling entitled to have an opinion and feeling entitled to have a say. I've got some really educated, thoughtful, smart, confident friends who've said to me, I don't understand the economy and how it works and I don't feel entitled to have a say. And I say to them, economics is a social science and it's a set of theories and they don't have any idea either. So you have the right to question these things and interrogate these things and to have an opinion on how money is spent on your behalf or the choices that we make as a society. 
Utopia for me is everyone feeling empowered and engaged and that they had something to contribute to solving the problem. And it also looks like people being able to contribute and make decisions at a local level, but with an eye to the world. Localism, I think, is really important in terms of taking action locally and being locally engaged, but we have to do it while being mindful of not just what suits us, but what suits the people who live downstream or upstream or down the road, and also what the impact and reality is for people who are even further beyond that. So, it's people feeling empowered, feeling engaged, and participating actively in making decisions about things that matter to them. And it is shifting our value system to be more human and holistic because our value system today disregards such a huge part of what it means to be human, to be physical beings who care for each other and need care, who live in a world, who need ecosystems that function. The idea of eudaimonia, Aristotle Mm. talked about that in terms of the individual flourishing, but what you're talking about is eudaimonia on a societal level, the idea of interdependent flourishing. Absolutely. And you know what? We can't flourish alone. We're social animals and I've never known any person who was perfectly happy while everyone around them was miserable. It's just not possible. I wish I'd actually written that in the book. That's not just about individual flourishing. It's about what we owe each other. But I think eudaimonia has an aspect of that because there's an element of living a life with meaning and purpose. It's very rare to live a life of meaning and purpose that doesn't touch other people or have a responsibility to other people. Because one of the things that makes a lot of people feel happy and valued is if they're in service to other people or they have a connection to or they're needed by other people. It's really easy, Eleanor. We just have to shift our value system. It's easy when there's someone as audacious as you. I think your audacity that you talked about before, it's a bridge for people. And that's what you're offering. You're offering a bridge for involvement and participation, which is an enormous gift. Well, that's nice. That's nice to hear. It's really hard to fight against imposter syndrome or a feeling that you're not qualified or entitled to have that view or make a claim. And there's more than once as I was writing this that I would stop and say, how dare I? Who am I to say these things and to make these prescriptions for society? You're the person that doesn't rely on someone else to say them. The way I framed it for myself was that I have the privilege of having access to more visions or more glimpses of this stuff. And I also have the luxury and the privilege of being able to research things and dive into them and spend time wrestling with ideas in a way that many other people in the world don't have that luxury. And so I have a responsibility to put that privilege into work. And that's how I see what I've done. So you basically surveyed the world for best in class, for tools to recenter the citizen, measurement tools like Jacinta Ardern's wellbeing budget, the City of Sydney's wellbeing indicators, redistribution methods such as universal basic services and policy frameworks like the Green New Deal you mentioned earlier, which put social justice at the heart of policy decisions. Why do there seem to be so many barriers to implementation for the elevation of living standards? What can you see in the clockwork that we can't? Well, the system we have today is working perfectly to get the system we have today. It's a self-fulfilling system. I spoke to a bunch of university students last week. One of them asked, what makes you think that governments today will implement any of these policy choices? And I said, absolutely nothing tells me that governments today will implement these policy choices, but they work for us. And we have to tell them that we want this. And I think what we have lacked, the forces of change or even the great groundswell of people who have the lived feeling that something's not working and that something's not right, 
we've lacked options to put forward and say, let's do this instead. And so we have to change things at a fundamental level. And to do that, we have to have alternatives that we're proposing that can replace many aspects of the systems that we have today. So sitting still and expecting that by electing the right candidates or voting with your wallet, we're just going to get that change. I think that's not going to happen. I think we have to proactively advocate for different approaches than the ones we have today. Because I've been thinking so much about, well, what can people do from this point? And I think each of us has areas that we're passionate about or hit home to us more than others, whether it's care or land or the environment or local communities or your local street or whatever it is. Find that one thing that resonates with you and that you have a deep engagement with and then find the alternative that could be, that will work, that you've seen in action. And then be a voice that tells everyone you know that that alternative exists and figure out how you can be part of the change of getting that alternative into play to become the dominant approach or to become one of a more pluralistic range of approaches. Because I think it's going to take each of us picking which of these seeds we want to plant and figuring out what skills we have to nurture it for this alternative reality to take hold. The system that we have today, it's working for the people who it's working for and those people are the ones with the power and the influence. You know, we have a very limited set of people who make decisions on our behalf. They don't look like the rest of society. They often have had very different life experiences to the majority of people. They tend to be more privileged and they tend to be more culturally homogenous and they tend to be male. And they also tend to have a narrow range of backgrounds in that they're likely to come from the legal professions or perhaps they come from industries that benefit from things staying the way they are. So we also need to diversify who our leaders are so that we get a broader range of decision makers with a broader range of perspectives. If the system is working for you, you have to be an exceptional individual to be motivated to deeply rethink it. Totally, totally. The system right now is working for those at the top who also happen to control it. And rather than waiting for the old guard to kick the bucket before the next gen of leaders who believe in a regenerative future can emerge, how do we get to this place of values-based deep rethinking at the top level? Because valuing the human, reforming finance, restoring the commons, rebuilding for equity, they all require empathic, strong values-based leadership. How are we going to get to that place where that values-based rethinking is happening at the top? I remain committed to the idea that politics has to be a tool that's turned to broader public good. I still think it's the best way that we've come up with of making decisions as a society, but I just think we haven't got a broad enough range of players on the field. And so we have to get different kinds of people with different perspectives and different agendas elected. But we also need to embolden and empower those people who are elected now to realize that there are a lot of us who genuinely want real change. And so I think it's a two-step process, two things that have to happen at the same time where we encourage and embolden our leaders to take bigger steps on our behalf. And I think part of the solution is also embedding more participatory forms of decision-making into the politics that we have now. And that's why I'm inspired by processes like citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies, because they're a kind of a shortcut to getting that diversity, but also to getting more ambitious policy prescriptions. And they also give politicians social license 
to be able to be bold themselves. So when we had that citizens jury process at the city of Sydney, you know, we're already pretty progressive. We're right out there in front. And they told us to go further. They told us we had to not just make a sustainable city, but a regenerative city that we had to put First Nations first and embed truth telling in everything we did. They told us that we had to center culture and nightlife, things that we have hoped and wanted as part of Clover and her team. But sometimes we think, does everyone feel this way? And they resoundingly told us, yes, this is not edge thinking. This is something that our community wants. And we know because this quite representative group of our community told us so. And they arrived at that position by going through 2,500 ideas that had come from the community and processing them into a grander narrative. And the other thing that that process tells me is that you can't do values-based thinking or leadership on people. You have to do it with people and you have to work with the community to arrive at the place that maybe they don't have words for yet, but it's where their hearts are. They just have never been asked to go that deep. People are asked to get involved in consultation on whether they want a cycleway here or there, or whether they like this play equipment or that play equipment. People aren't asked to dive deep and do values-based thinking as citizens anywhere. And that's what we really need. You suggested, which I loved, that we send politics to rehab. (laughs) (laughs) you're advocating for changing the machinery of government rather than focusing on the modus operandi of the current social movement or political party so those sorts of things citizen juries participatory budgeting this idea of escalating feedback and grassroots organizations rising up to claim city halls they're all among these tools of that machinery you've explored examples all over the world from brazil to Iceland, to Taiwan and the Rojava community in northeast Syria. Tell me about how you think these types of tools for rethinking the political system coming into play specifically in Australia. I think they happen in isolated instances and I think part of what we have to do is join them up and we have to talk about the outcome that's achieved in each of those places because I think people are often comforted when there's a precedent that you can point to and you can say, see, this is what happened in this place when people were empowered and actively involved. So I think that's really crucial. I think we have to join up the stories and spread the word about the positive impacts of them. And then I actually think we as citizens and as representatives need to advocate for them to be included in the way that we do things. And they actually need to be resourced because one of the things that's distinctive about citizen jury processes, for example, is that participants are paid to participate and be citizens. And that's actually really important. So you don't just get people who have the resources to be involved because then you're just entrenching the viewpoints of the privileged or the people who have the luxury of leisure time and interest in this sort of thing to contribute. I was really interested to learn that for Extinction Rebellion, for example, that sortition and citizens' assemblies is actually a core part of their mission as well. And I found that really heartening too, because they see citizen participation as being something that will unlock climate action, because I think they recognise that citizens and majority of the community are probably much further along in the climate action journey than our leaders have been. Oh, and I should also note, it's something that is actually not a politicised tool at this stage. It's actually something that could come in in quite a politically neutral way to empower people to have an active stake and have a say. And it could de-risk action for politicians who could point to it and say, it's not just me, this is what the people have said, and I'm just fulfilling their wishes. But in terms of how do we enact it here, I think we've got to join up the stories, we've got to resource it, and we've got to advocate for it. And we've got to put it in our list of requests and demands from the people who represent us. Amen to that. 2020, let's talk about this year. 
What has the instability of this year done in terms of exposing and catalyzing that need for change? Where has politics succeeded through all of this turmoil and where could they have done a better job? What are your political takeaways from this year? Look, I think all this year has done is accelerate all of the forces that were already in play. This year has just been someone pressing really hard on the fast forward button and zooming us 10 years ahead. And we could suddenly see that the water had been rising around us the whole time, you know, that work was becoming more precarious for more and more people. And that is a systemic risk for the health of our community, for people's ability to keep a roof over their heads, that there are more and more industries that we rely on that are being staffed by people who are exploited or vulnerable in our community. That housing has become something that is a constant struggle, keeping a roof over their head for such a huge part of the population. All of those things were just daylighted. They were already a problem and all those cracks were daylighted by this process. What has been successful politically? I think the political leaders who have been honest, open and empathetic communicators have cut through and they have engendered trust in a way that seemed impossible six months ago. One of the biggest risks that we face at the moment, I think, is a decline of trust in politicians, but also in institutions and in experts. And that has really damaging impacts. And when you see leaders who are able to build that empathy and trust and have honest conversations and trusting conversations with their communities, I think Daniel Andrews has done a great job at that. I think Jacinda Ardern's done a great job at that. I think in Finland, Sanamaran has done a great job at that. And the other thing that I thought worked well at the beginning in Australia was it became really obvious very quickly that many of the essential workers who were really needed and who are quite often in a really disadvantaged power dynamic were suddenly seen to be so crucial to society. And so the government had no choice but to have conversations with the unions and have more equal negotiations with them. And they previously had had quite, I think, a fractious relationship with them. So I think that was a really great outcome. I think the things that haven't worked so well is that in the absence of really great alternatives and viable policy proposals ready to go from the world that could be, we have seen governments in Australia fall back on the usual fixes when you're faced with an economic crisis. And that means that they have doubled down on construction. We're seeing talk about a gas-led recovery as though that's a thing that we want. And we haven't seen a concerted effort or advocacy for a care and environment-led recovery and a creative-led recovery, which is, I think, far preferable from a human and environmental perspective. And the research is all there. It's in the book as well. You know, we generate twice as many jobs from an investment in the care economy as in construction. And those jobs would be the kind of jobs that, as Ai-Jen Pu from the National Domestic Workers Alliance says, it's the work that makes all other work possible. It unlocks productivity for so many more people. It corrects the gender imbalance in pay. It means that we end up with healthier, more socially connected and more educated populations. And you have more women who are able to engage in the workforce as well. So we're just seeing more of the same in terms of the way solutions are being designed. And there are so many better alternatives that are just waiting in the wings. So much of what we're talking about is connected intricately with environmental regeneration as a flow-on effect. Do you think that there's an inevitability of this kind of systemic change for the better given the urgency of the climate crisis? Yes. Here's the thing. The climate and the social crisis are the same. We have to solve for climate justice and we can because the jobs that have the least damaging environmental footprint are also the ones that have the best social and care outcomes. 
the investments that we would make in building a cleaner and more sustainable economy would have great social impacts too. They're the recovery jobs that we need. So we have to do these both at the same time. And we already have an example from our very recent history of when we didn't do that. We ended up in the position that we're in today. And that's in 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis came about at the exact moment that policymakers were engaged with this new idea then of the Green New Deal that had originated in the UK in 2007. In Australia, we had been looking at an emissions trading scheme. All of those things were about to happen and were completely derailed by the global financial crisis. And rather than those new ideas being embraced and seen as a pathway out of that crisis, they were seen as something completely separate. And instead, we saw a bailout of banks, really damaging activity of the financial sector. And we saw austerity being used to pay for that, which meant cuts to public budgets and to people and to care and to local communities in particular in Europe and the UK. So we can't afford to do that again. We have to make sure that both of those issues of social justice and climate action are at the root of any recovery. They're the same issue. They're both about the continued viability of humanity, right? They're both the same problem. What's interesting to me is that so much of the glimpses of utopia you're exploring are returning to more natural, circular models, whether it's human-centred redesign of work, Indigenous wisdom in the way we're thinking about the country and carbon abatement, employee-owned enterprise, public-owned banking, donut economics, citizen juries, they all have an inherently circular model rather than the continual straight line of exponential growth that the current system is addicted to. There are no straight lines in nature, right? (laughs) Totally. They absolutely, and one of the things that surprised me was how few of them were new ideas. You'd be like, oh, that started in the US in the 70s in terms of like, um, I'm talking about community land trusts. Oh, they were first originated in the US in the 1970s, but they were based on ancient Indian models of the way villagers managed their common property and lands around villages in India. All of these things are really old ideas that have just been upgraded. Even the idea of public banking, you know, which I thought was this really fascinating and new idea of what if banks were designed to be stewards of public money and had public benefit at their core. It's actually an idea from the founding of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia in 1913. Is that right? Yes. Who would have thought it? So I think there's something really reassuring about the fact that many of these ideas have been tested in the past. And the benefit that we have today is that we can see what derailed them and we can build to protect them. And we know that them have been time tested and they need help to scale or be transitioned to different contexts. And I also think the resonance of seeing the same ideas emerge in lots of different contexts proved to me that there are elements that are universal despite how different the context and community needs are in different places. And that everything, whether it's participation in the place you work or the street that you live on or the decisions that are made on your behalf politically, it's about active citizenry. How can you be empowered and informed to have a say and have your voice heard and to feel that your voice matters? That's the thing that I just keep coming back to. How do we empower people and build the confidence of people to feel like they have a right and a duty and obligation? And not only that, we need them. We need everybody. You said that our current political system underestimates the altruism and the long-term thinking of the average citizen. And I feel like it's this audacious vehement belief that you have in the average citizen. Is that what it is that keeps you so optimistic? Um, <laughs> like, How do you remain so positive working within that same system? That's really tricky as well because that's not who I always hear from. Quite often the people who know how the system works and know how to have their voices heard are the ones who want the world to stay just as it is because it's working very nicely. 
I think because in every interaction that I have with people, they care about each other. It's just that simple. People care about each other. They care about their neighbours and they care about their kids or their nephews or nieces or the animals in their ecosystem or their pets. People are hardwired to care. And I think it's something that Case Dorst spoke about and he talked about identifying what people's social space is, which is basically the place between what they want and what they're willing to do for the good of society. And identifying that social space, I think everyone has that. Everyone has that place where they go, this is beyond me, this is bigger than what I want or need, but I can see how it would be better for everyone if this thing happened. And I think if we can find ways of tapping into that feeling for people and telling better stories that makes them feel included in that and active participants in that, then we have a better shot of getting the future we want but also that we can't impose that on anyone. People have to actively choose that, and that is part of being active citizens. And that starts with the reigniting of the civic conversation, right? Like how do we restart the civic conversation in Australia? Absolutely. I struggle with it so much. I'm not a perfect practitioner of this. I'm so bad at it, and I struggle with this, and social media is a particularly toxic environment to try and have a civic conversation. So I battle with this every day. And how do I avoid being on team A fighting team B? And how do I avoid othering and demonizing people who have different values to me? And I haven't worked it out yet. I think there are some great projects, like I think the My Country Talks project that I write about in the book and Europe Talks is a beautiful example of sitting down with people who hold very different values to yours and coming to a place of understanding them as human beings. I need help on this front. I think we all need therapy on how we engage with each other. I really, really struggle with that part. I guess that's the beginning is asking better questions. Yeah. Selves collectively. I think asking better questions. There's a movement from Chile called the Mesa de Unidad Social, which is a table of social unity. And basically, it's this whole coalition of over 100 different community groups. And they helped focus some of the energy around Chile's big uprising over the past year. And what they did was they empowered people to have these conversations, their own self-directed town hall meetings. They asked people really open-ended questions like, why do you think we got in the situation we're in today? And what do you imagine as another way forward? And what do you want from this country, basically? What do you want our society to do? And that's where we have to start. I think we have to start by asking people what their glimpses of utopia are and what their vision is and what future they want to opt into is. And then the next step is asking, well, what are we all willing to do to get there? Which is a beautiful way to wrap up. Thanks so much, Jess. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your company on the Dumbo Feather podcast, where we speak with extraordinary people who are building a hopeful future. If you're interested in becoming a subscriber to our magazine, go to dumbofeather.com forward slash subscribe. We deliver worldwide. Thanks to our friends at the Natural Shoe Store, where you'll find footwear that's good for your feet and kind to the planet. Thenaturalshoestore.com.au